What's that, boy? I said, I'm going. Graceful as a dancer, he slid out of the hammock. When he grinned up at her, the hat tipped rakishly on his sweat-curled hair and the light of the devil in those golden eyes, Della softened. She had to force herself to keep her mouth pursed and stern. You gonna root to that hammock one day. A body'd think you was ailing the way you'd rather lie on your back than stand on your feet. Lots more a man can do lying down than nap, Della. She betrayed herself with a loud, lusty laugh. And bring me back some of my toilet water. It's on sale down at Larson's. Tucker ambled over and folded himself into his Porsche, an impulse buy of six months before that he'd yet to grow tired of. Gravel spat under the tires as he slammed into first and streaked down the long, meandering lane. He reached for sunglasses first, sliding them onto his face before he chose a cassette at random and punched it into its slot. Jerry Lee Lewis shot out, and the killer's whiskey-soaked voice and desperate piano celebrated the fact that there was a whole lot of shaking going on. As the speedometer swung toward 80, Tucker added his own excellent tenor. His fingers drummed up and down on the steering wheel, looking like piano keys. Barreling over a rise, he had to swing wide to the left to avoid ramming into the backside of a natty BMW. He tooted his horn, not in warning, but in greeting as he skittered around the elegant maroon fender. He didn't slack his speed, but a glance in his rearview mirror showed him the beamer was stopped, half in and half out of the lane leading back to Edith McNair's house. Tucker gave a passing thought to the car and driver. Miss Edith had passed on about two months before. Around the same time, a second mutilated body had been discovered floating in Spook Hollow. That had been in April, and a search party had been whipped up to look for Francie Alice Logan, who'd been missing for two days. Tucker's jaw clenched when he remembered what it had been like, trudging through the bayou, carrying a Ruger red label, and hoping the hell he didn't shoot off his own foot or find anything. But they'd found her, and he'd had the bad luck to be with Sheriff Burke Truesdale when they did, just as Bobby Lee Fuller had had the bad luck to find Arnett Gantry just two months before. It wasn't easy to think about what the water and the fish had done to sassy old Francie, the pretty little redhead he'd flirted with, dated a time or two, and had debated sleeping with. His stomach clenched, and he bumped up the volume on Jerry Lee. He wasn't thinking about Francie. Couldn't. He'd been thinking about Miss Edith, and that was better. She'd lived to be nearly ninety, and had passed on quietly in her sleep. Tucker recalled that she'd left her house to some Yankee relative, and since no one within fifty miles of innocence owned a BMW, he concluded that the Yankee had decided to come down and take a peek at his inheritance. Half a mile back, Caroline Waverly gripped the wheel of her car and waited for her heart to slide back down her throat. Crazy bastard! He'd missed hitting her by inches. Then he'd had the gall to blast his horn at her. Oh, she wished he'd stopped so she could have given that homicidal jackass a piece of her mind. She'd have felt better then, having vented her temper. She was getting damn good at venting since Dr. Palamo had told her that the ulcer and the headaches were a direct result of repressing her feelings and of chronically overworking. Well, she was doing something about both. She was taking a nice, long, peaceful sabbatical here in nowhere, Mississippi. After a few months, if she didn't die of this vicious heat, 
she'd be ready to prepare for her spring tour. As for repressing her feelings, she was done with that. The past was safely behind her. The future, at least until she'd recovered her nerves and her health, wasn't of much interest. For the first time in her life, Caroline Waverly, child prodigy, dedicated musician, and emotional sap, was going to live only for the sweet, sweet present. Feeling better, she eased the car down the lane. She had a vague recollection of skipping down at once on some long-ago visit to her grandparents. When the house came into view, she smiled. It hadn't changed much. The paint was flaking off the shutters and the grass was ankle-high, but it was still a trim, two-story house with a covered porch made for sitting. She felt her eyes sting and blinked at the tears. Foolish to feel sad. Her grandparents had lived long, contented lives. Foolish to feel guilty. On a sigh, Caroline combed a hand through her sleek cap of honey-blonde hair. It did no good to sit in the car and brood. She needed to take in her things, go through the house, settle herself. The place was hers now, and she meant to keep it. When she opened the car door, the heat stole the oxygen from her lungs. Gasping against its force, she lifted her violin case from the back seat. She was already wilting when she carried the instrument and a heavy box of music up the path to the house. Caroline stepped onto the high, open porch. From there, she could hear the lap of water against some rock or downed log behind the tangle of live oaks and Spanish moss. She dreamed there for a moment, a delicately formed woman, a shade too thin, with exquisite hands and shadowed eyes. For a moment, the view, the fragrance, the sounds faded away. She was in her mother's sitting room. Very soon, they would be leaving for her first recital. We expect the best from you, Caroline. Do you understand? Caroline was only five. Yes, ma'am. In the parlor now, her arms aching after two hours of practice, she could see a robin perched in the tree. He made her giggle and pause. Caroline, her mother's voice slowed down the stairs, you still have an hour of practice left. Now start again. I'm sorry. With a sigh... Caroline lifted the violin that to her twelve-year-old shoulders was beginning to feel like a lead weight. Backstage, fighting off the queasy nerves of opening night, and tired, so tired from the endless rehearsals, preparations, traveling. Was she eighteen, twenty? Caroline, for heaven's sake, put on more blusher. You look like death. Do you know how hard your father and I have worked to get you where you are? I'm sorry. She had always been sorry. Lying in a hospital bed in Toronto, sick, exhausted, ashamed. What do you mean you've canceled the rest of the tour? Her mother's tense, furious face looming over hers. I can't finish it. I'm sorry. What good is sorry? You're making a shambles of your career. You've inconvenienced Luis unpardonably. I wouldn't be surprised if he broke your engagement as well as cutting you off professionally. He was with someone else, Caroline said weakly. Just before curtain, I saw him. That's nonsense, and if it isn't, you have no one but yourself to blame. The way you've been acting lately, walking around like a ghost, canceling interviews, refusing to attend parties. How do you expect me to deal with the press, with the speculation, with the mess you've left me? I don't know. I'm sorry. I just can't do it anymore. No, Caroline thought, opening her eyes again. 
She just couldn't do it anymore. She couldn't be what everyone else wanted her to be. Not now. Not ever again. Ten miles away, Tucker Longstreet streaked into the heat of innocence. He fully intended to get Della's rice and cokes and toilet water, then head back to stretch out on the hammock again. But he spotted his sister's car, tilted across two parking spaces in front of the Chattanchew. The Longstreets owned the Chattanchew, just as they owned the wash-and-dry laundromat, the Innocence boarding house, the Hunter's Friend gun shop, and a dozen or so rental properties. The Longstreets were wise enough, or lazy enough, to have managers for their businesses, but Tucker kept the books. His head for figures made it an annoying chore rather than a difficult one. The Chattanchew was one of Tucker's favorite places. Exchanging waves and haze with a scattering of customers, he made his way through the grease and smoke-tinged air to where his sister perched at the counter. She was deep in discussion with Earlene Renfew, who managed the establishment. Josie gave her brother an absent pat on the arm and kept talking. And so I said to her, Justine, if you're going to marry a man like Will Shiver, all you got to do to stay happy is buy yourself a padlock for his fly and make sure you're the only one with the key. He may wet himself now and again, but that's all he's going to do. Earlene gave an appreciative cackle and wiped a few wet rings from the counter. Why she'd want to marry a no-account like Will's beyond me? Honey, he's a regular tiger in bed. Josie winked slyly. Hey, Tucker. She turned to give her brother a smacking kiss before wriggling her fingers in front of his face. I just got my nails done. Hot shot red. What do you think? Looks to me like you've just finished scratching somebody's eyes out. Give me a lemonade and some of that huckleberry pie with French vanilla on top, Arlene. Josie drummed her newly painted nails on the counter for the pleasure of hearing them click. What are you doing in town besides stuffing your face? Errands for Della. Passed a car, turned it into the McNair place. Hmm. Josie might have given that piece of news more attention, but Burke Truesdale strolled in. Hi there, Burke. Josie. He came over to give Tucker a thump on the back. Burke was six feet of solid muscle with a linebacker's shoulders and a square-jawed face softened by puppy-dog eyes. Although he was Duane's contemporary, he was closer to Tucker in friendship. Burke rested one hip on a stool, his heavy ring of keys jangling. His sheriff's badge winked dully in the sunlight. Miss Edith Skin's moving into the house, Burke announced. Miss Caroline Waverly, some kind of fancy musician from Philadelphia. How long's she staying? Earlene always had her eyes and ears open for news. Didn't say. Miss Edith wasn't one to talk about her family overmuch, but I do remember hearing she had a granddaughter who traveled round with an orchestra or something. Must pay well, Tucker mused. I saw her driving a brand new BMW. Burke waited until Earlene had moved away. Tuck, I need to talk to you about Duane. He got juiced up again last night, had a pushy shovey going over at McGreedy's. I put him in a cell for the night. I figured he could use a place to sleep it off. Where is he now? Over at the jail, nursing a hangover. I figured since you're here, you could haul him home. Much obliged. Tucker's quiet words masked the raw disappointment in his gut. Duane had been on the wagon nearly two weeks this time. Tucker stood, pulling out his wallet. When the door slammed open behind him, rattling glasses on the back shelves, he glanced around. 
He saw Etta Lou Hattinger, and he knew he was in trouble. Belly-crawling bastard, she spat out and launched herself at him. If Burke hadn't been there, Tucker might have had his face sheared off. You think you can toss me off just like that? Etta Lou? From experience, Tucker kept his voice low and calm. You're going to hurt yourself. I'm going to hurt you, you fucking weasel. With reluctance, Burke slipped into his sheriff's mode. Girl, you pull yourself together or I'll have to take you over to the jail. I won't lay a hand on the son of a bitch. She swung in a circle while customers either stared or pretended not to. Y'all listen up here. I got something to say to Mr. Big Shot Longstreet. Etta Lou. Tucker took a chance and touched her arm. She swung out backhanded and knocked his teeth together. You said you loved me. I never did that. You made me think you did, she shouted at him. You wheedled your way into bed with me. You said I was the woman you'd been waiting for. Tears began to mix with the sweat on her face, turning her mascara into wet clumps under her eyes. You said we were going to get married. Oh, no, that was your idea, honey, and I told you flat out it wasn't going to happen. What's a girl to think when you come whistling up, bringing flowers and buying fancy wine? You said you cared about me more than anybody else. I did care. You don't care about nothing or nobody, only Tucker Longstreet. Then you're better off without me, aren't you? He dropped two bills on the counter. You think you're going to get off that easy? Her hand clamped like iron on his arm. You made promises. Name one. His temper building, he pried a clutching hand from his arm. I'm pregnant. It burst out of her on a flood of desperation. She had the satisfaction of hearing a mutter pass from booth to booth and of watching Tucker pale. What did you say? Her lips curved then in a hard, merciless smile. You heard me, Tuck. Now you'd better decide what you're going to do about it. Tossing up her head, she spun around and stormed out. Oops, Josie said, grinning broadly at the goggle-eyed diners, but her hand went down to take her brother's. Oldest female trick in the book, Tucker. Don't get your dick caught in it. He needed to think. He wanted to be alone to do it. You get Dwayne over at the jail, will you? And pick up Della's stuff. Why don't we? But he was already walking out. Josie sighed, thinking the shit was going to hit the fan. He hadn't told her what Della wanted.